Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. With your host, Andrew Donaldson, this is Heard Tell. Uh, welcome back to Hertel, folks. I'm Andrew Donaldson. Glad you're with us. We appreciate you giving us the most precious thing you have, your time. We're not going to waste a minute of it on this Tuesday, April the 5th. Year of Our Lord 2022 continues to roll on. We're enjoying spring. We hope wherever you and yours are across the street and around the world, we find you well and happy and things are going well for y'all because there's a lot of hot mess in the world we're going to talk about today. We're going to try to turn down the noise of the news cycle on a couple of really important stories. We're going to go back overseas. Uh, Vladimir Putin and the only problem in Europe, uh, wannabe dictator uh, Viktor Orban, who's also a darling of some certain media on the right in the United States of America, won a re-election. We're going to talk about what that means. Uh, also, we always try to end on a little bit of an uplifting note. Uh, an Irishman with terminal cancer travels from Ireland all the way to the Poland-Ukraine border to make sure aid that he personally fundraised got there. We'll talk about that incredible story in just a little bit. Also, uh, the votes are there for Judge Jackson to be confirmed to the U.S. Supreme Court. We'll review the Republicans. We figured there'd be a couple at least. There's going to be at least three of them. We'll review that part of the story here in just a minute. Uh, also, one of our favorites, she's back, Sarah Stook, a uh, historian, friend of ours over at the UK. She writes in electionsdaily.com, our good friends over there that does a lot of election work, but she does these wonderful history pieces. She's currently knee-deep in a series on the first ladies of the United States, their roles, how it's kind of unique, how it's not an official position, but has a lot of official capacity to it. We're going to talk first ladies of the U.S., some wonderful history, give us a break from some of the breaking news and current events of the day with our friend Sarah Stook. Always enjoy talking to her. Great stuff. I learned some things I didn't know either. Sarah Stook on the program. She'll be our guest in just a little bit. Um, but first, uh, the pressing matter of our day, Russia's illegal war of aggression against Ukraine, Vladimir Putin, leveling cities, murdering civilians, killing people for his own bloodlust and glory. Um, the president of the United States, Joe Biden, uh, we're going to read from the Washington Post, but you can find this all over the place. Uh, President Biden on Monday joined the chorus of world leaders who have said reports of mass killings in the Kiev suburb of Bucha constituted a, quote, war crime. He used that term, vowing to hold Russia President Vladimir Putin accountable for the apparent atrocities in the Ukraine. Uh, the president remarks bolstered the global furor over gruesome images from Bucha, that showed mass graves and bodies strewn in the streets, some with their hands tied behind their backs, several with gunshot wounds to the head, following the withdrawal of Russian troops from the region. The Kremlin dismissed the allegations as Ukrainian subterfuge. While Russia's military continued bombarding, Ukraine's southern coastline moves in line with U.S. intelligence assessment that Putin is focusing offensive operations on the south and east 
rather than the entire country and the new phase of the war likely to play out over months or longer. Let's pause here real quick. Uh, we talked about this on the program already. This is going to be a long war. He's not going to get Kiev, so he's going to focus on that land bridge that he wants to uh, Crimea, which they invaded in 2014 and took over. They call it an annex. They invaded Ukraine and took over part of Ukraine, which Crimea was a part of. This Ukraine war has been going on ever since then. It just got ramped up when they did this invasion. Uh, again, this doesn't have anything to do with NATO or anything else or any of the propaganda you hear. This has everything to do with Vladimir Putin getting more power. They want those ports on the Black Sea. They want Crimea. Uh, and now he wants a land bridge because he can't have Kiev and have the whole country. He's going to slice off the chunk that he absolutely has to have. Back to the Washington Post. Um, in his remarks to reporters at Fort McNair Army Base in Washington, President Biden promised to impose additional sanctions on Moscow. And while his aides announced support for a multinational team of prosecutors that would visit the region to collect uh, evidence of atrocities, a process that officials cautioned would take times, quote, the images we have seen and the reports we have heard suggest these atrocities are not the acts of rogue soldiers, State Department spokesman Ned Price said. They are part of a broader troubling campaign. Other sanction efforts continue apace where the U.S. and Spanish authorities seized a super yacht owned by billionaire Victor Veckelsberg as part of a wider push to drive the financial elite close to Putin. The human United States has also planned to push for the suspension of Russia from the UN Human Rights Council. UN Ambassador Linda Thomas-Greenfield said on Monday the suspension would require two-thirds votes of the 193-member General Assembly and is a move reserved for countries that persistently commit systematic violations of human rights. Uh, it goes on to talk about Britain is with us on this. Uh, France and Germany expelled scores of Russian diplomats on Monday over the horrific images. Proponents of tougher sanctions say they fear that without them, Kremlin might be willing to carry out a longer battle to pummel Ukraine's leaders into submission. Let's stop there. Um, the plan all along has been to pummel Ukraine's submission. This is not a military campaign. They're fighting the Ukrainian military, obviously, but they're focusing on the cities. This is the roadmap that they laid out in Georgia. This is the roadmap they've laid out in Chechnya. This is the roadmap they did in Syria. They're going to level cities. They're going to destroy them to rubble. They're going to kill civilians. They're going to rape, plunder, and pillage and destroy to get the population to bow the knee to Russia. Remember, the point of this invasion is not just what they say it is. It's because they think Ukraine should be a part of Russia. It should be one and the same. Vladimir Putin has said this plainly. They had this big Nuremberg-like rally in Russia just a few days ago that we covered where they chanted it and sang it, Russia, Ukraine, one country. They don't mean it in a good way. They don't mean it in a merger. They mean it as a hostile takeover. Putin said the Ukrainians don't have any national identity. They're not a real country. Word for word, he said they're not a real country. They should be part of Russia. They've always been a part of Russia. But they're not, and they're paying for it in their own blood right now. I completely support our president in calling this what it is. These are war crimes against the people that are suffering, and we should call it what it is. This is World War II evil-level stuff, and the stuff since World War II, we haven't done a real good job as a people, as both America and as a globe, in dealing with really harsh things, things like what happened in ethnic cleansings, like in Serbia, like in Darfur, like what's going on with the Uyghurs in China right now, what goes on in Indonesia. There's many, many examples, and we don't do a great job of it sometimes. This one's glaring. Here's us an opportunity to do a good job on it, and it starts by getting the terminology right. These are war crimes. Vladimir Putin is murdering people to get his geopolitical aims done, and those aims are all glory and power for himself 
and what he thinks his country should be. We should call it what it is. They're war crimes. They're crimes against humanity. They are evil, as evil as anything we've ever seen throughout human history. And we should say so, plainly, loudly, and with great repetition, so that history records that we knew what it was when it happened, and that there was people that stood up and said what it was when it happened, or else that history will judge us very, very harshly. More Hurtel right after this. Welcome back to Hurtel. I'm Andrew Donaldson. Let's go back overseas. Uh, it's not just Putin that's a problem in Europe. Uh, Viktor Orban, uh, we've t- covered him on the program before. He has uh, been in power in Hungary for uh, a long time now. He just won a pretty convincing re-election in recent days over there. Orban is one of those guys you we have to pay attention here because there's certain folks uh, on the right in America, especially the national conservative right, and folks like that who really want to hold him up as a model. Um, he should not be held up as a model. Uh, he puts things like family values and Christianity and other things in front of some really not good and questionable stuff that he does. He's cracked down on the freedom of press. He's cracked down on the freedom of speech. Uh, there is all kinds of accusations of corruption. There is all kinds of accusations of how he has worked the election system to make himself pretty much unbeatable in elections, which look like it played out here. But there's also plenty of people in Hungary that support him, so let's not overblow it here. Uh, he is very much somebody who is at best problematic and at worst somebody who could do some real evil in the world if he got enough power to do so. Um, so let's get a little perspective on this. We're going to go back overseas. Timothy Gardenash is writing in The Guardian, and he puts it this way. It is a bitter irony that just as we learned some of the worst atrocities in Russia, President Vladimir Putin's war of terror against Ukraine, Putin's closest ally among EU leaders, Hungarian Prime Minister Viktor Orban, is reelected partly because he turned that very war to his own political benefit. I'm reading from The Guardian again. As well as exploiting all the advantages he has already built into a heavily rigged political system, such as gerrymandered constituencies and overwhelming media dominance, Orban won by telling Hungarians that he would keep them out of this war that their heating bills would stay low due to his sweet gas deals with Putin. In his victory speech, the Hungarian leader listed the opponents, opponents is in quotes here, he had defeated. Listen to this list very carefully. They included the international media, Brussels bureaucrats and the Ukrainian president, Vladimir Zelensky, who has criticized him fiercely for his opposition to the weapons supplies and further sanctions that Ukraine desperately needs. So he tells us exactly who his enemies are. And friend Putin has hastened to congratulate him on his famous victory. If the Hungarian six-party opposition coalition led by the Marquese, I hope I'm pronouncing that right, has won, Hungary would have become a staunch Western ally in the face of Russian aggression, as other Central European countries, such as Poland and the Czech Republic, are proving to be. Russians go home, some youngsters chanted at the very end of that discontented opposition wake in Budapest, recalling a slogan from the time of the Soviet invasion of Hungary in 1956. Walking back at midnight across the deserted Heroes Square, I recall how in that very place in June of 1989, I had heard a young, seemingly idealistic Orban himself call for the withdrawal of Soviet troops from Hungary. Yet now the aging cynic is flatly refusing to let Western arms supply pass through Hungary in order to help the Ukrainian army send the Russians home. I wonder what he sees when he looks in the mirror. 
skipping ahead in the piece, uh, this is the nut of it. But here's the problem, reading from The Guardian, Ashed writing. Faced with the latest evidence of the barbaric behavior of Russian troops in Ukraine, Europe needs to step up its sanctions against Putin. When Orban refused for back-to-back summits of NATO and the EU in Brussels last month, his government sent an email to all Hungarians who had signed up for a COVID vaccine saying that, quote, proposals were put on the agenda against which Hungary's interests had to be protected. His government would never allow weapons supplies to go through Hungary to Ukraine, nor sanctions to be imposed on the 85% of Hungary's gas and 64% of its oil that comes from Russia. In response to the Bucha atrocities, EU leaders such as French President Emmanuel Macron are now calling for more sanctions, including on Russian oil. Self-styled realists may argue Brussels has to stay soft on Hungary in order to keep Orban on board for the common front over Ukraine. Europe should now get tough with both the Russian enemy without and with the Hungarian enemy within. But can it and will it do both at once? Here is another dilemma on this dark, depressing weekend that has presented to a deeply shaken Europe. That's Timothy Garden Ash, uh, historian, political writer, and Guardian columnist writing from Hungary. I've got his answer for him. No, they will not. Um, they have lo- very little power over authoritarians. That's how we have the mess with Putin right now in the first place. Uh, again, there are elements on the right in America that want to hold this man up. As an example, he is not. He is just as bad as Putin in a lot of ways, although he is more subtle and has killed less people. He is nonetheless just as authoritative. And just because he puts family values and he does culture war stuff on front of it and talks about things like that that tickle your ears doesn't make him any less of a tyrant. I don't have a buzzword that's ever going to make me forget somebody's a tyrant and Victor Orban's a tyrant. And anybody that sits on American TV and says we should follow his example is lying to you because he's still a tyrant, no matter what fancy tickling buzzwords he puts in front of it. More Hertel right after this. Oh, she is back. Uh, fan favorite, including with some of my oh, children, uh, Sarah Stook, historian. Uh, writing at elections.daily.com, one of our favorite websites that we partner with them frequently. She does a lot of history stuff. She's writing a series on First Ladies. Sarah, how are you? I'm good. Thank you for having me on again. Thrilled to have you back. Thrilled to be talking about this topic because I find it so interesting. Put a little context on it because, of course, you're over there in England. Um, U.S.'s system of government is unique in a lot of ways. How does the role of a first lady play into that? Because they're not elected to office. They don't really have any actual power. And yet when you go through history, they have a ton of influence. They have a lot of state functions as far as representatives of government go, as we'll get into with some of these stories you're going to touch into. Just compared to other countries, the status of the American first lady, what is it and how does it come across? Well, it's definitely different to here. You know, the spouse of the prime minister doesn't really get much attention. I mean, our current spouse, Carrie Johnson, gets quite a lot of press because she's seen as a bit interfering, rightly or wrongly, and she's nicknamed Carrie Antoinette. But yeah, in America, it's so different. You've got first ladies who were very, very political, like, you know, Hillary Clinton. And then you've got first ladies who use their role as hostess to a team like Dolly Madison, you can so many ways. And if you've got the ear of the most powerful man in the country, you can use that. And they're there to be the, the nice face. First ladies have much better uh, popularity ratings than their husbands generally because they don't get into the nitty gritty 
it's a lot easier for them to be popular. However, I think that's less true over the years as I think first ladies have become more emboldened to be political as have women overall. Yeah. Uh, you mentioned her, so let's just start right there. Dolly Madison, kind of the first, I don't know, you call superstar, but certainly one of the ones that actually got a little bit of legend around her for a couple of various reasons. How much of it is true? How much of it is historical? How much is it myth and legend, the things she did? Of course, we understand the time period she was in. Talk about Dolly Madison for just a minute. Well, she was a pretty phenomenal woman. She wasn't, you know, political, maybe like Abigail Adams had been before her or anything like that. But, you know, she used state functions well. She was an incredible hostess. She knew who to put together at meetings, who not to put together. Everybody liked her because she was just so good at hosting. And that played a favourite for her husband because he might be unpopular for political reasons, but as long as she shines through, and that's what she did. And that really helped the administration. Um, That time period, the early founding fathers, Let's talk about those early White Houses, though, because they didn't even really have a White House. You talk about Washington, Adams, Jefferson, the early presidents. Um, they were really making this up from scratch. Washington, of course, had to, you know, the two terms gets really famous, but he had to do all of this from whole cloth because there was nobody before him. Uh, Adams did a lot of writing about what the presidency should and shouldn't be. He felt the weight of history being the second one. <laughs> Talk about that, though, because with the first ladies, it's the same thing. They didn't really have a template, those cup, those first three or four. They're making it up as they go. And then when they actually did get a White House, they they kind of understood that they were setting a protocol for something, didn't they? Yeah, well, they were just sort of following what their hosting duties would have been in high society, you know, in early Philadelphia and New York. And perhaps, you know, those who are a bit more worldly saw, you know, the French courts and the English courts. Obviously, it wasn't as ostentatious due to America's disdain for royalty but they were just following what their mothers and grandmothers and women across the world do and so the president didn't know what his role was the first lady certainly didn't know what hers was either when did it start to change and get more formal because you're up through the antebellum time period now you're getting ready to get into sort of the uh the gilded age industrial age of the country when did it become more formalized and go from, you know, something we would recognize in a period drama as just the hostessing duties to something a little more refined of, hey, this is basically an extension of the function of state. And it kind of became its own unique American thing. I think Dolly Madison definitely started that trend. That's when people started to notice the first lady, even though that term wasn't in use when Mrs. Madison was around. She was the one who really said, okay, this is how you do it. These are the, this is the etiquette. This is where people sit together. She was definitely more of a hostess than her predecessors. You know, um, Jefferson wife had died. So it was his daughters that helped. Abigail Adams was a bit more of a blue stocking. And Martha Washington was, you know, she was no, no means sort of a country bumpkin, but she was more of a planter wife as opposed to a sort of, social elite worldly type so dolly madison i think put the practice in as we understand it today so where did the term talking to sarah stuck historian and writer and good friend of the program been on many times where's the term actually come from first lady because that's that's kind of a unique term uh it's been used in other areas obviously but when did that become the the nomenclature for the president's wife or the president's spouse i think it's definitely within the past you know century i think you know it was a term, they would, it would be presidential spouse or um, I think it was Martha Washington wanted it to be Mrs. Presidentress, which didn't really catch on as it shouldn't because it's not a very 
snappy title. So it's definitely sort of a new thing. Like it wasn't called the White House until, you know, Roosevelt's time, for example. It's sort of a new vernacular, like first family, first child, even first pets. Yeah, we uh, you'll probably have to do a pet one of these at some point, too, while you're at it, because there's some good stories with that. Talking to Sarah Stuck. OK, you mentioned the elite. You mentioned France. We actually had not a first lady, but a first lady and everything, but name Elizabeth Hay, uh, one of the Monroe children, very uh, Francophile or whatever that fancy term for that is, to the point went to school with one of Napoleon's stepchildren and actually ended up moving to Paris and living the rest of her life in France. But she served as the de facto first lady and hostess of the White House. That's a pretty interesting story. What happened there? Well, like you said, educated in France, brought, you know, French je ne sais quoi to the White House, which, you know, isn't always popular, especially when she was acting like royalty, which, again, they didn't appreciate. But, you know, if we go even as close to us as Jackie Kennedy, she was extremely inspired by the French, much less so in hosting, but she was a huge Francophile who also studied in France. So I think the, the old world definitely influenced the new world when it came to hosting, sort of, oh, look at us, we are worldly, this is how the Europeans do it. Now, one that was on these early ones that I don't think I've really heard talked about and or mentioned much at all, but Martha Randolph. Um, I find this really fascinating because people, people know the stuff about Jefferson. They know the Sally Henning stuff. They know Jefferson's wife died. Talk about Martha Randolph, though, because you you dubbed her kind of the unifier. She was a presidential daughter, obviously. This is somebody who hadn't been talked about a lot in American history. I don't I didn't really know anything about her other than just the name until I read about you. But very interesting character. Exactly. I mean, you know, back in sort of the olden times, if a queen was no longer living or couldn't, a daughter or a daughter-in-law would take over, you know, and we would see that with first ladies. Um Jefferson's wife said to him, please don't marry again, because she'd had very bad experiences with her stepmother. So Jefferson agreed, still rape slaves, but hey, hey. So he asked Martha to do it, and she was pretty good at it. She was pretty unpretentious. She was a very pretty girl, married, lots of children. So, you know, children running around the White House, for example. I believe she had 11, so, you know, she didn't slack when it came to the childbearing, and she did live through all of it. Unfortunately, her sister died in childbirth, age 25. She sometimes helped out as well, which was unified because she knew exactly how to do it. She'd been doing it from such a young age because her mother died when she was fairly young. So she knew exactly what she was doing. She was sort of trained from birth in a way a lot of first ladies weren't. How much influence, when, when we're talking about these presidents and their first ladies, and in some cases their daughters, we we've marbleized these guys, the Jeffersons, the Washingtons, the Adams, you know, they're statues now they're legends. Doesn't studying this angle on it with their wives, their family lives, the way they ran their household, which is just kind of the mundane day-to-day stuff. Jefferson kept very detailed notes on how Monticello was to run things like this. I find this a great way that kind of humanizes these, these guys because they're, they're so they're more myth than men to us now. And I think this really seems to humanize them in a lot of ways because they had to have interpersonal relationships with all these people, didn't they? Exactly. I mean, Thomas Jefferson, obviously, we remember him as quite, you know, serious, quite a bit dull, remembering, you know, badly for the Sally Hemings affair. But, you know, he did 
love his wife. He didn't actually marry again, which he said he wouldn't. Though you can sort of skirt around how he also skirted around that. But yeah, he was a human being. John Adams, you know, was very, you know, a bit of a pompous idiot who very much liked himself and didn't get on with others. Adored his wife, Abigail. In France, he refused to take a mistress like most of the French did, saying, no, I've got Abigail. He listened to her ideas, also didn't always agree with them because time period, her feminist ideas probably weren't too popular, but he did love and respect her. Yeah, fascinating stuff. Sarah Stuck, our good friend from over in the UK, uh, writing in uh, electionsdaily.com. She's got a great series on first ladies. So we're talking a little history today. When we come back, uh, we're going to get into a little later history. One of the most famous first ladies for a lot of wrong reasons, Mary Todd Lincoln, going to get into that. Some other first ladies that you may not have heard of. More with Sarah Stuck on her tell right after this. Hi, welcome back to Hertel. We're continuing our conversation with Sarah Stook, our good friend over in the UK, historian, writer. She's writing about U.S. first ladies. Okay, just the dichotomy of it is amazing because we we mostly think of Lincoln as our greatest president or one of the greatest if he's not number one. Um, but poor Mary Todd Lincoln may have been one of our most troubled first ladies. Uh, she was a great burden on the president for a lot of reasons. They still had their tender moments as you did, but she had a lot of trouble. Uh, there's probably a mental health component to a lot of that. She had a lot of tragedy, even in the white house. The, it, it's just amazing that one of our greatest presidents at the same time had on top of a civil war had this absolutely tumultuous home life with his wife. I think she's very, sort of cruelly remembered as Lincoln's crazy wife. You know, there was an episode of Glee where one of the characters made fun of Mary for being bipolar, which I remember was very controversial. This was like a decade ago, so I can't imagine it would be done now. She, you know, definitely had some problems. Obviously, we can't be armchair psychiatrists, can we, and say, okay, yeah, she definitely had this or that, but she was a very troubled lady. You've got to think of the time where mental health was extremely poorly understood women were just seen as hysterical so everyone thought oh she was just a bit of a hysterical woman and it's quite sad really you know she was a very intelligent woman she was a very loving wife who was devoted to her husband and her children but history remembers her as oh yeah she was put in a lunatic asylum no she was living with the civil war just as much as her husband she had family fighting for the confederacy even though she was a firm unionist and much more of an abolitionist than her husband was so we remember her very cruelly which is quite a shame and i think very good portrayal of it was um garvidal's lincoln a three-part series which you can find on amazon uk and it's mary tyler moore plays it and she's fantastic and we see a lot more of mary and understand her her feelings and her motivations she had some legitimately tragic stuff go on. Uh, you talked about her family being split during the war. Um, she suffered from chronic migraines. She was involved in a carriage accident, which may or may not have affected her physical health, probably did with all her other ailments. She had children dying. Of course, Lincoln was assassinated. That, that just broke her in a lot of ways. She had more on her than just about any human being could probably take anyway. How, how should we view her? I know you say it's probably unfair because history is like that. And, and Lincoln is so great. It's probably, you know, part and parcel with Lincoln being so great that, you know, he could he's flawless to a lot of folks. 
how should we present somebody like Mary Todd Lincoln? Because she's an important figure in history because she steered his early career. She steered him away from going out West and doing politics out there, which probably would have not let him be president down the road. She's an important figure in history. How should we view her? Do you think? Well, I mean, she was definitely troubled and I think she had a lot of potential cruelty. You know, there is rumors she hit her husband. There's the famous event where she screamed and yelled at a general's wife who'd, dared to ride next to her husband and the poor lady was reduced to tears. So yeah, she definitely had you know, capacity for some cruelty, but whether that was mental illness or she just had that streak in her, Lincoln said, you know, she used to be a very loving, happy woman. So unfortunately I think, you know, age and tragedy embittened her, but you know, like you said, she, he, she stared his career. She was an abolitionist when he certainly wasn't. His was more for pragmatism than moral reasons, especially at the beginning. And yeah, she's not just some, you know, crazy lady who's just in an asylum by her own son. Nowadays, hopefully she would have much better help. And I think as a society, we're a lot more understanding and forgiving of that. Um, from somebody who was very troubled to somebody who was complicated and adapted I found um, when you wrote about it, a president we don't talk about a whole lot, Rutherford B. Hayes, his wife, Lucy. Um, we talk about, you know, nowadays we use the term activist a lot. She really was an activist in a lot of cases. And then she had to kind of adapt herself to the politics of the day and the White House. And she still seemed to have a very strong relationship with her husband. Talk about Lucy Hayes a little bit. Yeah, everyone just mocks her as Lemonade Lucy, who, you know, didn't allow wine at the White House, etc. I mean, we've still had two two-toller presidents, you know, Trump didn't, he saw his brother die from alcoholism, Bush suffered from alcoholism, and now he doesn't drink. But back then, you know, prohibition, temperance was extremely popular, especially among women. They saw husbands coming home drunk and idle, beating their wives and not working and thought, you know, this is a societal problem. And she was far from the only one. And she was extremely intelligent. First lady to go to college, she was extremely intelligent, so much so that Rutherford B. Hayes was both ad admired her and was a bit scared of her for being so intelligent. She probably would have got um, supported women's suffrage if she'd lived longer or been in a different time period. She wasn't absolutely perfect on race, but she definitely was very strongly abolitionist and spoke out for civil rights. She was a pretty remarkable lady who's just gone down to, oh, she didn't like to drink. And she was a, she's the forebearer. Before her, first ladies were maybe very intelligent, but they weren't you know, highly educated as it wasn't expecting women to. But look, several of our most recent first ladies have either got law degrees, PhD, or, or graduates. Yeah, amazing, isn't it? Uh, talking to Sarah Stuck, a little bit of history. Okay, here's one that I love and I've actually studied a little bit. Uh, Julia Grant. Uh, Grant, of course, speaking of drinking problems, Grant had himself one. Uh, Lincoln famously told when the generals tried to get him fired, get Grant fired, he famously quipped that we'll find out whatever brand he's drinking and I'll give him more and give it to all the other generals because he fights. Uh, but when you look at history, the only time Grant drank was when his wife wasn't around. 
it's very amazing relationship. Julia Dent was her maiden name. Talk about her uh, very fascinating woman, her family background. And then she got connected to Ulysses S. Grant, who, <laughs> to, to put it kindly, was a failure at pretty much everything he did that did not involve the army until the Civil War kind of revived his life. Talk about her a little bit. You know, she was born pretty much to refinement. Her family owned slaves. You know, she grew up very pampered and well off, but she always said, you know, she had a very happy childhood. Um, her brother was at West Point with Grant and said, you need to meet this guy. I think you would get along. But obviously they clearly did because they got married. But his parents wouldn't attend the wedding because they were staunch abolitionists. And one of the um, very few presidential parents or couples who were still alive when the son became president. So they said, oh, you're marrying into a slave owning family. We've got nothing against Julia. She's fine. But we don't want you marrying into that. And conversely, his father-in-law liked him but said, I don't think you can provide for my daughter in the way I want. And during the Civil War, when he offered Grant, you know, come to the Confederacy and Grant said no, Mr. Dent just was only didn't break off ties because he was so close to Julia. Now, when he gets to the White House, um, Ulysses S. Grant, of course, the great war hero, uh, very troubled presidency, a lot going on. In fact, uh, the term for corruption in the White House for decades after that was grantism. Uh, some of that's unfair. Some of it is fair. We can parse that out some other time. Uh, but a tumultuous presidency for somebody who was kind of a living legend. How did she handle her actual time in the White House? You know, she obviously her husband was very much known for his corruption, she said, and probably only skated through it because he was a war hero. She just said, Okay, I'll ignore it. And she just got on with it, which to be fair, it's not really what she can do about it. She may be associated with his wife, but she's not political. So she's safe in that respect. So she just sort of got on with it, as many first ladies do. You know, look at Hillary Clinton during the impeachment and the Lewinsky scandal. She just said, okay, I'm just going to crack on with being first lady. And that's sort of a hallmark of many first ladies going through very hard times without problems and that's probably how she was raised you know you've got a wife and a mother never perturbed by anything and famously grant uh was practically broke when he died but he was fighting throat cancer there's a famous picture of him sitting on the porch in the adirondacks writing his memoirs one of the great memoirs by the way if you've never read grant's memoirs go find it read it but he finished them right at the time of his death and it restored his family's fortune and she had quite the post-White House career. She kind of became sort of a conciliary to future first ladies, the Cleveland she was very close to. She had a very, very successful post-White House career, advocacy-wise, and just being kind of a, a who's who in the Washington circles, wasn't she? I think, you know, when I write about, write about her, there was just so much I wanted to give in, but, you know, you couldn't do a whole piece on it. And there's probably first ladies I'll write about in the future, the ones like Jackie Kennedy, who I just read a biography of her, who had the most amazing post-White House life, Hillary Clinton, you know, her political career. There's so much you want to, you know, jam into it because, well, there's so much to do. But it's an article about first ladies. So to be fair to them, I will write about more what they did in their time as first lady, but we may be associated Hillary Clinton more with politics, but, you know, Julia Grant, she will always most likely be a first lady as opposed to anything but. Yeah. All right. I've been saving it because this is one of my favorite things you've written in the first four series of this, but 
You talked about it before. Uh, Mary Todd Lincoln was a little hard to get along with. You talked about that ride, the, the her excoriating the general's wife for riding too close to Lincoln. Julia Grant was there for that. She saw that. She tried to intervene. She got her head bit off. And that kind of intersected with one of the most famous things that has ever happened in American history, didn't it? Well, in April 1865, they invited the Grants to come to the theatre with them. Ulysses S. Grant was probably all for it, but Julia Grant said, no, I can't stand her. It will be boring. Let's stay at home. We've been apart for too long. Let's just have some time together. And that night, Lincoln was shot. So A, Grant could have been shot, or B, maybe could have prevented it because he said, if I'd been there, there would have been a lot more, you know, bodyguards and military so you know he she basically saved his life and i bet she never shut up about that during arguments did she i doubt it although grant grant very much if you read his personal memoirs and you read his letters uh he very much deferred to his wife on practically everything i think he was pretty self-aware to his uh station in life there was that social disparaging between them i don't know if it was so much that i think he just was very aware of his own issues and knew that she made him better and again, like I said, fascinating. All, every time he drinks in the Civil War and he's accused of being a drunkard, it's only when his wife's not with him. He never drank around Julia. I just find that maybe it's because I'm an alcoholic, but I find that fascinating, that little piece of history. All right. You're halfway through the series. Preview a little bit. The rest of them aren't out just yet. Preview where you're going with this. You already mentioned some. We know there's some big names. Hillary Clinton's coming up. Uh, who, of course, had her own political career and two runs of the presidency. But between there and here, we got a whole lot of first ladies. Who are you looking forward to getting into? Well, everybody who knows me and follows me on Twitter knows I idolize Jackie Kennedy beyond belief. So I'll be trying not to devote an entire thing about how much I love Jackie and her amazing life and how amazing she was. Eleanor Roosevelt, who I absolutely adore the most trailblazer did so much for women in civil rights who I just find the most incredible woman who I think should have been president over her husband but yeah we've got some other ones um Edith Wilson Ellen Wilson there's you know there's so many um well yeah I think particularly the newer ones we've had such a, an amazing variety of women you know Michelle Obama versus Melania Trump two very different ladies but both deserving of um writing yeah what are you going to do with Edith Wilson, our first female president? Or are you even going to get into that? Uh, well, I'm going to have to get into that because, you know, like you said, she was called the first female president for a reason. She kind of floated protocol. It should have gone to his vice president. But pretty amazing that she did that and flew under the radar because there's no way in heck society was going to be okay with a woman basically running things, especially when women were just getting the vote. So she, yeah, she's definitely going to be a fascinating one. And I urge people, if you've got a particular first lady you've read about who find interesting, definitely read more about her. Yeah. Cause uh, for those of you that don't know what we're talking about, Wilson suffered a stroke. She became the gatekeeper to the president and basically ran the government for something like 14 months. And nobody seemed to stop it, which is just fascinating. I can't wait to read your writing about it. Uh, Sarah Stook, you do great work. We love having these little history interludes on the program. Let folks know where they can find you. Of course, this series is on electionsdaily.com. Let them know where your social media is and the schedule for the new co pieces coming out. And we're going to have you back on in a week or two to recap all of it as well. So let folks know where they can follow you. Um, well, it's Sarah underscore Stoop on Twitter. I also write for the UK publication called The Mallard. I am writing a piece on royal mistresses, most famous mistresses. So that will be quite fun. Um, 
and I've written a few sort of alternate history and various things on UK politics on there. Elections Daily, I will be keeping up writing with First Ladies, starting with um, Lucretia Garfield this week and going on to about early 20th century. So, yeah, follow my things. Yeah, Garfield's a fascinating president, too. Nobody ever talks about him, but he he's a really interesting dude. Yeah, you, go ahead. I was going to say, I think he would have been very great if he'd lived. Yeah, it's just fascinating story. All right, you brought it up, so I got to ask you though. Uh, royal mistresses, uh, we're we're kind of getting down to it with the queen. God bless her, but you know, time's undefeated. Camilla, she went from mistress to being basically. It looks like she's going to be pretty well legitimized when this thing goes to Charles. How does that land? Well, she's going to be princess consort. She will have the right to be queen consort, but he, she knows people don't like her over the Diana thing, so she will be princess consort but i think she's regained popularity there's still people who hate her like my mom danny is my middle name for a reason so but i i like her plenty fine yeah. but unfortunately you've got to understand throughout history men have just been a bit man whorish is charles ever going to be popular well, yeah i think people have softened on him a bit but it's never going to be sort of william popular no i i think when the queen does pass away, whenever that is, hopefully many years from now, I, I, I think he'll get some sympathy out of that. And I think that'll yeah. put a lot of that to bed, but well, of course that depends on how he conducts himself, but you know, he's, he's pretty old in his game now. He should be able to at least not, you know, punt it. I hope Sarah Stuck, We'll have to talk about Royal stuff some other time. Great stuff on history. We love having you on. We'll have you back on in a couple of weeks to talk about the rest of the series when it comes out. And you're always welcome, my friend. Thanks for the time. Thank you for having me. You're the best. Appreciate it. Uh, welcome back to Herd Tell. Quick note here. Uh, something that we've been watching and monitoring a bit. Uh, Katanji Brown-Jackson, the Supreme Court nominee. We've covered it extensively. We've talked to our friends like Ann Carpenter about her. Uh, she now has at least three Republican votes. That's more than enough to make sure her nomination goes through. That's pretty much what we predicted. We predicted she would pick up two or three. Uh, so far, Susan Collins, uh, Lisa Murkowski of Alaska, and Senator Mitt Romney have come out and said they will vote for her, uh, assuming the Democrats get all 50 of their Senate votes. That would be a decent margin as these things go, at least won't be tied or less. Uh, so as predicted, she will sail through. Her nomination for the Supreme Court will go through uh, unimpeded. Again, this was one of those things you just needed to turn down the noise on. Uh, she was going to get confirmed. There was no major red flags here. There was nothing that said she was not qualified. She was qualified. There was machinations in the hearings. They wanted to bring up uh, the sentencing of certain people for things like child pornography and other things. Uh, I would encourage everybody to just read those things yourself. We've covered them here. We've covered them in ordinary-times.com. We've actually pulled up some of those rulings if you want to read them. You need to be careful with the noise on these things. So you get things like uh, Senator Josh Hawley, who desperately wants to be president but never will be, uh, railing about her uh, giving easy sentencing guidelines to folks. Of course, you can go back to when he was in positions like that and also gave out easy guidelines when he was an attorney general and a district attorney and things like this. 
these things go deep. Don't just go after the buzzwords. Don't just go after senators sitting on a dais railing against people who can't really fight back because they're sitting up on the dais and the confirm the person trying to get confirmed is just trying to get through the hearings so they can get on their seat and get on with their lives. Um, these things have become dog and pony shows. Nothing really important happens in them. Uh, it's all theater for fundraising and these sorts of things. We should find a better way to deal with our judicial nominees, but that's not what we have right now. We have a government that likes to do kabuki theater, especially when it comes to the United States Senate. But long story short, everything that we thought would happen happened, and Judge Jackson will now be Justice Jackson in the coming days. Uh, we hope she does well for the country and wish her well in her role, uh, like everything else. When she's right, we'll say she's right. If we got a disagreement with her, we'll say so as well. Uh, she has a lifetime appointment, so keep that in mind. Uh, but she is going to be a justice on our Supreme Court, and we wish her nothing but the best because that's what's good for the country. We'll see how it goes. I'm sure we'll disagree with her on some things. I'm sure we'll agree with her on others, and we will keep our bearing either which way. More Hertel right after this. Ah, welcome back to Hertel. All right, grab your tissues. You might need them for this one. We always try to lend on an uplifting note or something at least more positive of all the heavy stuff we have to cover. This one is an amazing story. Going to the Independent out of the UK. Uh, an Irishman living with terminal cancer has made his way from County Cork in Ireland to Ukrainian border with a truckload of eight. 64-year-old local man Don O'Leary, a well-known figure in Cork City, is suffering from terminal cancer, but that did not stop him from making the 2,500-kilometer journey to Xinyai on the Polish-Ukrainian border to bring urgent aid to those fleeing the war after raising 24,000 euros from the local community. Mr. O'Leary is the director of the Cork Life Center, which educates marginalized young people in the city and said he never had any doubts about making the journey despite his diagnosis. He said, quote, I can control cancer, but I can't control what I do, where I go, and who I want to be with. When the doctors told him that he had terminal lung cancer in February of 2021, he was initially given 8 to 12 months to live. Despite this, he made it his mission to help the Ukrainian refugees. He revealed everyone said, are you mad? And the answer to that is probably yes. I'd love to be able to do something that is relevant and important and supports the community. But this kind of thing does all of that. He clear He's clear when he says that Russian President Vladimir Putin is a fascist. Mr. O'Leary made the journey by van. On March 22nd, with four other volunteers, he said, I was comfortable enough because they made me a bed where I could get some sleep along the way and lay down. During the time, he was regularly in contact with the young people in the Cork Life Center he works with. He took questions from them while on the road and tried to communicate what he was witnessing. One question he says stood out, quote, what was the difference between us going to Ukraine and the people coming out of Ukraine? That hit hard. They left their houses behind, he said. They may never get to go back. It strikes you. That is your life. Three suitcases, women and children. In every war, they come off the worst. Uh, an amazing story. This man has terminal cancer, not letting it stop him from doing the right thing. Uh, there's other stories, other people in Ireland that have drove all the way to the Polish border, taking aid straight there. These stories are all over Europe. Of course, here in America, folks are doing fundraising and putting things together. Uh, humanity wins out and the best of humanity shines in the dark hours like this, especially in a conflict, like what's, especially in a conflict, like what's going on in Ukraine. Uh, that'll do it for her tell today. So glad you were with us. Uh, we so greatly appreciate you. We always want to make sure we take time 
and tell you thank you. You're giving us the most precious thing you have. That's your time, and we're never going to treat it lightly. We're always going to work hard to make your time worthwhile here. That's why we try to turn down the noise of the news cycle, bring you knowledgeable guests, bring you folks, the things you actually want to hear about, things you want to know about, and try to do our very best to give you a good show. Uh, so uh, until we see you next time, we hope you continue to subscribe and share our program. If you're on any of the platforms, podcasting platforms, the YouTube channel, the Facebook page with our Big Talker uh, Network's radio partner, Make sure you're leaving comments. Make sure you're leaving ratings. Make sure you share the program. We don't do advertising here other than word of mouth and what we advertise on the show itself. We greatly appreciate it. If you want to reach out and contact us, herdtellshow at gmail.com. You can also find us at herdtellshow on the Twitter. My Twitter handle for the fire and the Twitter handles for all our guests are always on the lower third screen graphics for you. Make sure you're following and supporting them. We got some really amazing guests coming up. Uh, people that's going to challenge your thinking, people you probably don't agree with, people that you're going to learn things from because I have people on the challenge my thinking and that I learn things from that I didn't know. Uh, this ain't the Tickle Your Ears show. This is the Grown Folk Talk show, and we're thrilled to bring it to you. So until we see you tomorrow on Herd Tell, wherever you and yours are, across the street or around the world, we hope you are well. We hope you're well fed. Talk to you tomorrow on Herd Tell. All the music on her tell is provided under a creative content license from monstercat.com. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.